Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Study. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. It's been a while since you've heard my voice. I've spent this semester working on a book that's under contract and another book that was just accepted. I appreciate all of my New Books Network co-hosts who have done interviews that have appeared on this channel while I've been away. And while there's still lots of editing to do, more than I want to think about, I'm hoping that I'll be able to resume my usual interviewing pace. That should start soon. I've got a couple lined up that should be posted in the next couple of weeks another three interviews scheduled, and so I'm looking forward to returning to your podcast feed. Today, then, we're going to return to the occasional series of podcasts about the Rwandan genocide I began before my unanticipated podcast sabbatical. We talked with Michael Barnett earlier about the international history of the genocide, and soon I'll post an interview I recorded before my break with Aaron Jesse. But today, I'm thrilled to get to talk with Sarah Brown. Sarah is a postdoctoral fellow at the USC Shoah Foundation the Institute for Visual History and Education, and the author of a fascinating new book, Gender and the Genocide in Rwanda, Women as Rescuers and Perpetrators, published by Routledge. Sarah joins a rich theoretical perspective with extensive research in Rwanda, talking with perpetrators, rescuers, and members of NGOs and other human rights organizations. I focused on gender and genocide in the show in the past, but I've never specifically connected this with Rwanda. So I'm really excited to get a chance to talk with Sarah about it. And so with that, Sarah, thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I always try and give people a chance to say a little bit about who they are and and how they became interested in the subject of mass atrocities. So um, so how did you get to be an academic, and, and, and why this? That is such a good question with a long, circuitous answer that I, <laughs> I'm trying to think about how to pare it down best. You know, I, I had the good fortune of doing my undergraduate degree at Clark University, and there I took this course called Introduction to Genocide Studies. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I took the course because I didn't want to have to take a Friday course. But <laughs> I just... <laughs> Full disclosure, this is how I'm going to make my first impression for all the people that are listening. I was one of those undergraduate students. We were all one of those undergraduates at one point. So I ended up taking this course and I had grown up in a household where we spoke regularly about the legacy of the Holocaust, having lost family members and had also family members who fought uh, with the U.S. Armed Forces in order to liberate. So For me, I had this assumption that when we said never again, we had meant it and never again had become the, uh, the, the dictum that from then on guided international political decisions and intervention. And much to my surprise, when I took this course, I found out, in fact, that was not the case. And it was, in a way, this sounds dramatic, but it was devastating for me. And I ended up on an overnight decision, marching down to the registrar's office and changing my degree 
from one that was pre-law to one in international relations with a concentration in Holocaust and genocide studies. Now, again, I had the good fortune of being at Clark University, which is where the Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies is. And so I quickly fell under the tutelage of incredible, incredible minds like Deborah Dwork, Yehuda Bauer, Barbara Harf, uh, Kristen Williams. There were all these different academics who worked with the center or worked at Clark who really started to guide my uh my academic transformation, also Shelley Tenenbaum. And eventually when I was in between my junior and senior year, I went to Rwanda for the first time and I interned with an organization providing nonviolent conflict resolution training and techniques to Gachacha court personnel. This was 2004. It was right after the 10th commemoration. It was just, a, it was a fortuitous, I mean, fortuitous is the wrong word that implies that there was something good about this, but it was a it was the right time to visit Rwanda for the first time for me. And so I arrived in Rwanda with way too much luggage and very little idea about what I was actually doing. And I ended up spending seven incredible weeks there in the midst of what was the end of the commemorative period and also the beginning of this new pilot initiative with the Gachacha courts. So that really shaped my initial uh, post bachelor's degree trajectory, because after that, I went on to work in refugee camps in Tanzania and then in refugee resettlement in the greater Dallas area. And then I went on, I, I realized that I still had some questions that I wanted to ask. So I decided to pursue a master's degree in Israel. And while I was in Israel, I worked with refugees and asylum seekers from Eritrea and Sudan predominantly. And I did a master's thesis about the 1972 Burundian refugee population that I had worked with when I was in Tanzania and in Dallas. At that point, the, uh, the college, the university where I was teaching, the Interdisciplinary Center, they hired me to help run the program. And that was really my first foray into academia. And I loved being in the classroom, but as folks with uh, graduate degrees will know, but not quite PhDs, there is a glass ceiling. And so I decided to pursue my PhD in Holocaust and Genocide Studies. I went back to my academic roots. I went back to my academic home and I returned to the Strassler Center and I became their first doctoral student candidate and now PhD in Comparative Genocide Studies. So when I arrived at Clark University, when I arrived at the Strassler Center, I had one idea about what my dissertation and what the next five to six years of my life was going to look like. And then quickly that spiraled out of control and, uh, you know, crashed and burned and I had to change my ideas around. But at some point during my preliminary research, when I was doing fieldwork in Rwanda, I started to realize that there was this narrative in place that seemed incomplete. And I was guided by some questions that Cynthia Enlow, this renowned uh, feminist theorist and activist and just an incredible all-around educator uh, who uh, eventually I had the great honor of having on my committee. She would ask these questions that, you know, what does a feminist analysis begin with? Just start counting. Ask yourself, where are the women? Start counting them. Figure out what positions they're in. Figure out where they're, where is their narrative? And what I realized with it was that during uh, the genocide in Rwanda, there is a version of events of what happened, and then there is the interpretation and uh, how folks have made sense of it and uh, analyzed it. 
And oftentimes it renders women into two categories, either women as victims or women as bystanders. And I began to realize through just some basic question asking that this was an incomplete narrative. And that's what led me to uh, my PhD dissertation and this book, Gender and the Genocide in Rwanda. That is the shortest version I can give of this story. (laughs) (coughs) That's a remarkable story. I had no idea. No idea you were the, I guess, founding graduate student or at least founding PhD person in the program. Yeah, they, you know, I have to really credit the Strassler Center for this progressive uh, vision where they started out as the first PhD in Holocaust history. And then they expanded onto the Armenian genocide. And around the time that I was starting to really formulate these meaningful questions that I wanted to explore in a PhD program, they were also thinking about how to expand to the comparative genocide studies realm because they understood that this was an absolutely necessary area of study. And there had been, as you probably are well aware, there had been some contentious debate within the field about whether or not we can have a comparative genocide studies. And um, my center had taken the stance that, yes, in fact, you, you must And so they did with me. And now there have been several who have uh, also pursued this and are in the process of pursuing their studies in comparative genocide studies happily. And we're going to talk about the book in just a second, but but you're actually at another really significant institution in terms of the study of genocide. So I thought maybe I'd just give you a second to talk a little bit about uh, USC Shoah uh, Foundation and what you do there. Yeah, that would be, I mean, uh, it's my pleasure to talk about my work. I was just recruited in May to work with USC Shoah Foundation, the, um, the Institute for Visual History and Education, in order to build out educational content and outreach for the post-secondary audience. So we have the Visual History Archive at USC Shoah Foundation, and there we have over 54,000 testimonies that are published in our archive. We are one of the largest archives of the, our kind in the world. And we use those testimonies to develop free educational content through a a web portal called Eyewitness. And Eyewitness has a very robust following within the middle school, junior high, and high school arenas. And they have started to develop both content within the primary school sector. They're working with child psychologists to pilot several programs to see how best to introduce some of this educational content to a younger audience. And then they recruited me to help build out their post-secondary content and resources. And so just in August, we launched Eyewitness University, which is a dedicated landing page for college and university faculty, administrators, and student leaders, where they will find curated video clip content, uh, activities, resources, and also my contact information if they want to pursue specific projects that will help. Uh, They're all grounded in our visual history archive, but also will help to enrich the education experience on their campuses. So I'm, I feel I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm very thankful for my long circuitous trajectory to here of all places, Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say I've used uh, some of the sources or the resources of the, uh, the Institute in, in, in really minor ways or foundations are in. Um, and it's been really helpful to my students. So I'm looking forward to using them um, at greater length in the future. But, but let's turn to the book. Um, And the core of the book, at least as I read the book, is the question about the actions of of women during 
the genocide, but you start out with some history. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how the history of Rwanda shaped gen- gender assumptions and perceptions in the period before and, and during the genocide. That's such an interesting question because I start with this pre-colonial. Everyone, uh, there's this tendency to start the history of many of these uh, African states. And I I think this is not just in Africa, but you also see this on the continents in the Middle East, but also the continent of Asia in general, that we start the history or modern history of these uh, kingdoms, states, countries, people with the arrival of uh, colonialism. And it's just such a problem because colonial rule, it did radically change the existing systems and structures that were in place in Rwanda. But Rwanda was an established kingdom well before we see the arrival of Richard Kant in, uh, and, and various other colonial powers and traders. So it's interesting to me. I mean, the pre-colonial period in Rwanda is still one that is largely predominated by a patriarchal system in which um, men are the heads of households. They're the heads of state. They are the ones that hold the most significant positions of power. But women have a role. They play this significant role. Of course, the Mwami, which is the king in Rwanda, is a man. But he has, uh, there's this matrodynastic system in place in which the uh, kingship is passed from father to son. But the son is, uh, usually comes from the clan of uh, various mothers who would marry the Mwami and they would rotate power between the various clans through the mother. Also, these mothers who would become queen mothers eventually often exercise a considerable amount of influence over their sons. This mother-son relationship uh, has, uh, especially with the reign of one particular queen called Kanjagera, that it's had a real and distinct impact on Rwandan politics, the formation, the kingdom, the size of the kingdom, and also the intrigue within the royal court with which there there was plenty of intrigue. So... It's a period that is marked by patriarchal rule, but women are afforded roles uh, of influence and roles of leadership. And because also uh, with colonialism came Christianity, also within the religious sphere, women were afforded positions of leadership and as spiritual advisors and guides. Later on with the arrival of both colonialism and Christianity, we start to see that change, especially as the colonial powers, first the Germans, but later the Belgians, really start to uh, solidify their control over the both the Mwami's court, but also via this indirect rule, the entire country. As they start to do that, you see women stripped of more and more of their power and also with mass conversions, uh, you also see this transfer of power from more traditional faith systems that had a place for women to the patriarchal structures of Christianity in the early 1900s. So gender plays this incredible role in that, or well, gender is, it's almost one of the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, as women are being increasingly marginalized by colonial rule and also uh, this very patriarchal version of Christianity, you start to see that people's human rights and agency, autonomy, all of those things are also being constricted at the same time and uh, being taken over by the colonial powers and the, the white fathers at the time. So 
for me, when I started to look at this colonial history, I did not see a lot of the gendered aspects of this history. I didn't see a lot of where women were playing a role, but there were a few scholars that had done some great preliminary work. And so I was able to build an analysis off of them and, and realize that in fact, women play this incredible role. And you also see this in the early independence, post-independence periods where uh, the rulers who take over Rwanda and they end up becoming dictators, they also play this sort of uh, patriarchal, they are the father, they cannot be questioned. I mean, with first, you know, Gregor Kaibanda, he kind of talks about how he's this undisputed leader. There's, uh, there's no democracy. There's no space really for political discourse or disagreement. And then later on in 1973, we also see Juvenal Habyarimana take power and also play that strongman father figure, so much so that on April 6th in 1994, when his plane is shot down and the genocide begins, the RTLM radio is crying out, the announcers are crying out, our father is dead, our father has been killed, so this patriarchal thread continues uh, this idea of the leader as a male, undisputed man, uh, who's a father figure, who cannot be questioned, who cannot have rivals, who cannot, who, you know, takes all the oxygen out of the air so that uh, out of the room so that you cannot have political discourse. That's that continues all the way through until the genocide. This was not actually on my scripted question. So forgive me if I think out loud. Uh, Javier Arum's wife, of course, was powerful in her own right, does that derive from that pre-colonial tradition of the importance of the mothers of the clans? It's an interesting, it's interesting. Agath Kanziga, also known as uh, Agath Habyarimana, who is the wife of Juvenal Habyarimana, she plays this incredible role from 1973 on, where not only is she an advisor to her husband, and she plays a role via her indirect influence and direct influence over her husband and, and through the direct influence over her husband, indirect influence over the trajectory of Rwanda and uh, politics in Rwanda, but also her clan, her family members are the ones who are given positions of unique power uh, um, in the business, the industries, and also in politics in Rwanda. And so you do see an extension of this norm, if you if you want to call her this tradition of the wife's clan exerting influence through the wife as uh, as the wife of and the and the queen mother, so to speak, of the children that are are born by Agath and Juvenile Javiarimana. It's also interesting to note that uh, because of her, because she in a way was, she was incredibly powerful, but she was also known to be somewhat ruthless. She also sometimes was jokingly referred to as the conjugera of the ter- of the period. And so they immediately made that reference to the queen mother conjugera who had, who wiped out entire families because in this pursuit for power. And then also you see it kind of moving forward, people identifying Kanjigera and her, you know, her role in Agath as she takes power in 1973 and exercises a certain amount of indirect and direct influence over Rwanda. The, the other kind of background chapter in the book talks about the attempts uh, by radicals to mobilize public opinion in favor of a kind of exclusivist nationalism, um, or, or maybe that's not the right word, racism. Um, can you talk really briefly about these media campaigns and then maybe a little bit more about 
whether they impacted women and men differently, and if so, how? Oh, for sure. So you saw a a concerted effort to mobilize, militarize, sensitize, and then some would also say desensitize the larger Rwandan population to go along with the plans of the extremists in power who, uh, you know, while the genocide feels like, and oftentimes it was referred to in the media as this chaotic experience where nobody knew what was going on and tribal warfare and all those references, it was in fact quite quite organized. I mean, it's impossible from April 6, 1994, when the the plane is shot down late that evening, by the next morning, roadblocks are in place, lists have already been distributed, and also uh, various Hutu moderates and uh, Tutsi elite are already being targeted. There's no way that all happens in a chaotic vacuum in which there wasn't some sort of plan in place. And so those extremists also needed to put a plan in place to make sure that the masses either stood by or participated in the perpetration of what became the genocide in Rwanda. The It's interesting to know, I mean, I had all these preconceived notions about what this chapter was going to look like when I started conducting my research, because because there have been so many great scholars out there. There are so many scholars who preceded me that have talked about the, these mobilization efforts. And they've talked about the role of the RTLM radio. They've talked about the role of print publications uh, like Kangura. They have talked about the role of various speeches like one particular political leader, Leon Mugacera, who had this one particular speech that's been analyzed over and over and over again, in which he says, do not let yourselves be invaded and talks about sending uh, Tutsis, uh, back, throw them, throwing them into the river and sending them back to Ethiopia where they came from. So, I had, or I had these preconceived notions about what it would look like when I applied a gendered lens to my analysis. And some of what I found was consistent with what I expected, but I was also surprised by other parts of it. So one of the things that I found was a number of scholars have talked about the piece that was printed in 1990. It was published in 1990 called The Hutu Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments basically list out the rules of do's and don'ts for Hutus who want to be good Hutus. So it it prescribes and proscribes all the different behaviors that they should and should not be doing. But what's interesting to note is that the first three of these commandments are, in fact, highly gendered. And they speak directly to Hutu men and, and Hutu women. So, you know, the first one, every Hutu male should know that Tutsi women, whether they may be work, uh, whether they may be work for the interest, wherever they may be, sorry, work for the interest of their Tutsi ethnic group. As a result, a Hutu who marries a Tutsi woman, befriends a Tutsi woman or employs a Tutsi woman as a secretary or a concubine shall be considered a traitor. That's the first one. It's speaking directly to relations between men and women in Rwanda. And and not only that on a kind of cross cutting, it's also about the ethnic relations between men and women. The second one, every Hutu should know that our daughters are more suitable and conscientious in their role as women, wife, and mother. Are they not more beautiful, good secretaries, and more honest? So now they're setting a positive boundary. They're kind of building up the us group against the them group. And then the third commandment is Hutu women be vigilant and try to bring your husbands, brothers, and sons back to reason. So when I looked at these first three commandments in particular, I 
a number of things jumped out for me. First of all, it is not lost on me that the Ten Commandments, having these be Ten Commandments, is particularly significant in a country where over 90% of the population in 1994 identifies as Christian. And so to bring this out as the Ten Commandments is you're setting, uh, you're setting some hard limits and you're also setting some very high expectations for behavior and you're associating it with practice, religious practice and faith. The other thing for me was that the mobilizing rhetoric that's within those first three commandments specifically is aimed at women or about them. You know, the first commandment is about identifying Tutsi women as a particular threat and saying that this, this group is particularly nefarious and an inhuman them in an us versus them paradigm. But the second commandment is now building up the us group that's offering positive identification for not just Hutus, but Hutu women. And then the third one is particularly revolutionary in my mind because it encouraged women to actually stand up to their men and make them see reason. This is sanctioning a level of agency for women who before this have been socially and culturally restricted from standing up to men. You are not supposed to directly speak out against your husband. You are not supposed to directly scold him. Uh, there are even some practices in some of the rural, uh, rural societies in Rwanda where if a wife is unhappy with her husband, she cannot directly address him. She is supposed to uh, refrain from sexual relations with him until he asks her what is the matter and gives her space to air her grievances. And he may very well not. And therefore she has to stay quiet. So this idea that suddenly women are supposed to take action. This is this is revolutionary in a way. And it also it doesn't just give them agency. It gives them uh, ability. It gives them you know to to, to uh, maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it suggests that in a in a war and I'm coming at this from a European lens in a world where women are not necessarily supposed to be rational, and maybe that's the wrong assumption about Rwanda. But um, you are. You are not just giving them the right to speak, but you are granting them the ability to persuade men. That's just interesting. And you're giving them some language to go around it. And again, remember, these aren't these aren't commandments eight, nine, and ten. These are one, two, and three. Well, in the initial ten commandments of the Old Testament, you find that those are the foundation for monotheistic faith. So these are the foundation for this hypernationalism and ethnic divisionism that is being uh, propagated and perpetuated around the country. Now, these were in print form, but they also were shared on the radio uh, extensively. And RTLM radio was a significant mouthpiece for Hutu extremists. And one person that I studied in particular was radio broadcaster Valerie Bemariki. And she, I actually had the opportunity to interview her, which was a, a very interesting experience all around. But before I had in, had the opportunity to, interest, to interview her, I had heard about her from various government and non-governmental organization stakeholders and survivors as someone who is particularly poignant, particularly effective on the radio. It was said that her voice would increase both in volume, but also in speed as she became more and more passionate about this hatred for the Tutsi population and taking action against Tutsis. And so 
Bemariki, Valerie, she's, you know, she was one of a few women who were radio announcers at RTLM. She wasn't the only one, but she's the one that everyone remembered and, and not everyone, but a significant number of people remembered and made reference to as particularly effective as a role model for Hutu women, but also as a galvanizing force for Hutu men who didn't want to appear to be leading from behind. Here she is telling men and women to get out and work. Well, we don't need a woman to be telling us this. So we're going to prove our masculinity by going above and beyond. At the same time, women are listening to her and she is in fact convincing because she's a woman speaking to them from a woman's perspective. The one that I think surprised me the most maybe was that in my mind, political leaders, these big, especially the national leaders were going to play this significant role. And instead, what I found when I interviewed uh, women I found that most of them were not members of a political party or that they didn't even know if they were members of a political party. So this meant that they didn't have any indoctrination at the party leadership level. What they would have experienced might have been indirect or or not a result of in-person interactions with a party or at a party rally. And in my mind, I also thought Leon Mogacera's speech, Mogacera's speech about do not let yourselves be invaded, something that has been hailed by genocide scholars as one of these key moments of mobilization. I thought it would be brought up multiple times. Nobody brought it up. So for me, it was an, you know, I remember in the first few interviews going, Oh, okay, well now I need to change course in my questions. (laughs) And one of the things that I was able to find was that when I asked about what they were hearing around their hill or in their local area? What were they hearing in the market? What were they hearing in the church? What were they hearing at school? Then they were able to speak much more in a much more animated and detailed fashion. So their knowledge of local politics and local leaders indoctrinating them was one thing at the national level, perhaps less so. So, so at that local level, is it, is it male figures who they're listening to or is it female? Interesting question. The majority of those who spoke about this, and I will say that it was a little bit tricky with interview, trying to determine the mobilization and sensitization for perpetrators. A little bit, this was problematic because many of the women perpetrators that I interviewed denied their participation in the genocide. And then so with that, they would also deny the mobilization efforts that would have actually catalyzed their involvement in the first place. So it surprised me because I expected having read studies, great studies by uh, folks like Scott Strauss, who had gone in and interviewed all of these men perpetrators. I thought that I was going to have very vibrant and detailed conversations about how they were mobilized. But often I couldn't get past the fact that, yes, they had admitted to their crimes. They had confessed to them. I only worked with those who, with the exception of one who was Valerie Bemariki, who was at a prison, but she had also confessed, I only worked with uh, women perpetrators who were serving their sentences at Tiege facilities, which are these open air community works facilities, not a traditional prison. And the way that you get there is if you confess to your crimes. So these women had confessed in detail to crimes. They had been believed by the Inyanga Mugayo, the judges of the Gachacha courts, And yet when I sat down to interview them, the majority of them said, no, I did not actually do those crimes. And so I don't remember what I heard. Or yes, I heard from a church leader. And oftentimes these leaders were male. These are men leaders. Yes, I heard from my church leader or the local Interahamwe militia leader. uh, Because remember, the Interahamwe militias were being trained as these local defense forces well before the genocide began. So they were doing community defense activities and they were already indoctrinating folks walking around doing, uh, doing rounds, doing these, uh, 
I don't know that these, these defense counsel type things that, so women were actually hearing from them and they were mostly men, but they, uh, most of them also said, Oh, well, I don't remember. Or, Oh yeah, I heard something in the market, but I didn't pay attention to it. So it was a little bit problematic where I thought I was going to be able to mine this rich vein of how women were mobilized to perpetrate. Instead, I had to deal with whether or not they had participated in the first place or been framed. So, well, let's turn to perpetrators then. So why do you think they were reluctant to talk? Well, maybe I should back up. Do you think they were telling you the truth? (sighs) Um, It's a little bit problematic because... So of the 26 women that I interviewed, about 20, no, exactly 22 of them denied their involvement in some way, shape, or form as compared to what they had confessed to in the Gachacha courts or the national courts. Um, I did not want to make an, a sweeping judgment based on that. And so I ended up randomly sampling nine of the women who I interviewed. And then I compared their interviews with their Gachacha court transcripts. So I worked with uh, the folks there at the archive to collect their transcripts, translate the transcripts, and then compare them with the interviews. And I found that at least seven had substantial inconsistencies. So seven of the nine were complete. The, the rendering or the version of events that was shared with me by the women convicted of perpetrating the genocide, it did not line up with victim testimony, witness testimony, or their own testimony at their Gachacha court proceeding. I have a hard time believing that 22 of the 26 who denied their involvement in some way, shape, or form, that all of them were somehow framed, or it was a result of an incompetent court, or uh, it was local rivalries. Um, You know, I have a hard time believing that. But I was more interested in why would they not tell the truth? Why would they try to withhold some of their, you know, why would they try to in some way deny or minimize their participation in the genocide? And my theory here is that it might have to do with the gendered interpretations of what is acceptable uh, regarding women's participation in violence. There may, it may well be that now, you know, 20 years out, I've been doing, I, so I did my research from 2011 till 2000 and I'm trying to remember now, 11, 12, 13, 14, long, long ago, uh, as I was doing my research, I wonder if maybe there was cause for shame and denial because they're also as much as women's roles in the genocide are discussed much more readily in Rwanda, they are often described as unacceptable or unnatural. I had one scholar who actually told me that the reason women participate in the genocide is because they forgot their role. And so I wonder if some of the cause for denial or minimization had to do with that shame and that sense that perhaps their, their participation in the genocide was not acceptable as compared to a man's participation. So do we have some sense of the, um, the scale of women's participation in the genocide and what kinds of, in what ways they participated? Sure. So we do have them based on the Gachacha statistics. And so if we just look at Gachacha, when Gachacha closed, they found that of the 1 million, let me pull it up, 1,958,634 cases 
that were tried by Gachacha, 1,266,632 were category three crimes. So these are pertaining to property theft or destruction. I bring up that statistic because specific to women, it was found that an overwhelming majority of the women who were brought to dock over 90%, they were tried for category three crimes. So those are property related crimes. But overall, and actually maybe I should um, step back first, you know, there was initial research that was done that found that about 3% of those awaiting trial before Gachacha got off the ground, about 3% of those awaiting trial were women. And so folks were saying, okay, about 3%, that's a pretty small number. By the time the Gachacha courts got underway nationwide, and once they had closed, it was found that of the 1,003,227 individuals who then make up the 1.9 million cases, but of those 1,003,227 individuals, 96,653 were women. That's almost 10%. That is much more significant. That's a significant finding. Now, of those, of those women who, again, this is only Gachacha. So remember, if they were a category one perpetrator, which means that they played a role as an architect or a primary driver of the genocide, they were not tried in Gachacha. They were tried by the national courts. The Gachacha courts were just for the category two, three, and four. And then later on, they consolidated two of the categories. So it became two and three. So the Gachacha statistics are just for category two and three. And category two is a pretty broad one. That includes everything from accidental death to intentional death, but not playing a role as an architect in the genocide, the conspiracy to commit genocide. But still, of those category two and three crimes, over 90% of them were category three crimes, which are property theft or destruction. So when we're thinking about how did women participate, it's not just about the number, but it's also where did they participate? The majority, it looks like, participated in property crimes, including looting and theft and destruction. But then a significant number of also participated in acts of direct killing, meaning that they exposed those Tutsis who were in hiding, or they directed uh, directly participated in mobs that mass murdered. And then a very small number, a much smaller number, actually participated in direct lifting up of a weapon and killing of another individual. And you actually, I, I don't think you listed this, I didn't hear it. You, you also point out that there is some cases of women committing rape, correct? Yes. Yeah. There is one story that I was able to, I was able to confirm. It was interesting. And this has something to do, I think also still with the existing gendered norms and expectations in Rwanda, but not just in Rwanda, around the globe, we find that, Men who are victims of sexual violence, sexual assault, rape, they're often marginalized or they're not given a space in which they can talk about their victimization and their survival. And I found that this was the case in Rwanda as well. One of my first meetings with the leader of Ibuka, which is an organization for genocide survivors, one of, I think the largest one, the umbrella one for in Rwanda, one of the first things that he told me was that, yes, men were raped by women during the genocide, uh, young men, older men, uh, instances of uh, being drugged and raped, forcibly raped, forced to commit uh, sexual acts on women or on family members. And he said, you'll have a hard time finding these folks. And I eventually was able to speak with one individual who told me about, he was in hiding. He told me about his experience. He was in hiding and there was a 
older Hutu woman who was helping to protect him. She was feeding him. And one day she came and knocked at the door. He opened the door and with her, with her were several Hutu women who were dressed in military attire. And these women dismissed the older woman who'd been helping him and they tied him to a bed. They injected him with drugs and had him sniff something that he was not sure what it was, but it changed his whole demeanor. It, it, it affected him as a, narco- a drug. And then they took turns raping him over a period of several days. When I asked him if other individuals had experienced the same violence, if he, if he knew of other men, he said, yes, but none of them were willing to come forward and speak to me. So it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting, almost as much as I may want to try to shine a bright light on that corner so far, I've not been able to really explore the prevalence of this, of this act. And for him, it was when he was talking about it and I, I give him the pseudonym Charles in the, in the book, when Charles talks about it, he talks about it as though at one point he actually said to me that it was like being made a woman. So he spoke of his victimization in uh, feminizing terms for him, his masculinity uh, and all of the prescribed sort of socially constructed norms and traditions that came with that and expectations that had all been taken from him as an act of this, of this sexual violence. And it, it really brought home for me the fact that this was not a crime of, of sexuality. You know, it's not a sexual crime. It's a crime of power. And unfortunately for Charles, they never, he never saw these women brought to justice. So I, that actually leads nicely into my next question, which is about agency and constraints. And, and you make the point throughout the book about how women's agency is constrained in important ways. Do, do female perpetrators, do they cite this as an explanation or as an excuse? Or, or, or don't they talk about that at all in terms of their roles? That's an interesting question. Um, there... So one of the reasons that I decided to even go down the path of this, this book was to make the point that women did exercise agency during the genocide in Rwanda, but that that agency is within this context of a a deeply entrenched patriarchal system. And that patriarchal system at once limited their agency, but because of the social, uh, upheaval that took place during the genocide, it also in a way freed them to act in ways that they maybe would not have been able to had the genocide not taken place. And I did see it as uh, agency was something that was maybe not that term specifically was not directly referenced by the women that I interviewed, but I definitely saw amongst women rescuers, for example, that they, many of them and each story was different and it was, uh, and it was unique, but there were certain themes. One of the things that I noticed was that they were capable of thinking for themselves. They, they definitely had this idea of, yes, I can hear all the rhetoric that's going on around me. And yes, I, yes, I'm being told that I need to hate my neighbors because they are Tutsi and for no other reason, but I'm able to think for myself, or I'm not going to take those lessons from these political leaders or the local in Terahamwe leader. I'm going to listen to the teaching of my parents who participated in rescue or grandparents or religious leaders who say that we all share the same blood. And so they were able to think for themselves and in thinking for themselves, exercise a certain amount of agency in determining what they were going to believe and what they were not going to believe. 
at the same time, I did see that there were those women perpetrators who said, well, what could I do? I was a woman. And in some instances, most of the women that I interviewed, they, they participated of their own volition, but there were several women who were forced. They were actually forced to participate in violence. There was the instance of one woman who was forced by the Interahamwe to bring stones and drop them on the head of a man who was at the bottom of a well. And she explained to me that I could not, I could not say no to them. And she, would ha- she expressed a considerable amount of remorse. It's actually interesting to note that those women who, perpetrators who did, the more, they were more likely to express remorse if they had been very forthcoming and explained in detail their participation in the genocide. There's a little bit of a calculation that I came to within, uh, within the book. And one of my findings, just the more, the more forthcoming they were about their participation, the more remorse they were able to express. Others would say, I was a woman. I couldn't do anything. There was the instance of one grandmother who she told a couple different variations of her story. But the thing that was consistent was that during the genocide, her husband, she and her daughter helped to in some way kill and hide the body of the grandson. And the grandson was half Tutsi. The, the father was Tutsi. At different times, she said that she played a direct role, but she, uh, in another version of her telling, she talked about the fact that actually it was her daughter and the husband who went and perpetrated the killing. And when she tried to ask them what had happened to the grandson, her husband said, basically shut her down and said, you're a woman, you know better than to ask questions. And she could not ask anything further as a result. So yes, that constrained agency does explain why some women perpetrators perhaps did not stand up to male figures in their household. But at the same time, it also, there was a space for action. And so that's where you see women rescuers who are able to exercise considerable agency, even within the context of this constrained patriarchal system and also the, the chaos and upheaval and the tearing of the social fabric that comes with genocide. Yeah. I was going to turn to the rescuers next. So that's a good bridge. Um, and, and you point out that women and men are, at least as I read your work, similar in their realistic perception of the dangers facing rescuers. And so, mm-hmm. so how did women, maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally, um, maneuver within Rwandan ideas of gender to keep themselves and those they were protecting safe? Mm. There are a couple of stories from women rescuers that I interviewed in which they understood that there were gendered spaces in the household or gendered expectations about the strength and capability of women that they manipulated to their advantage. Um, Overall, I would say that, you know, some of this has to do with the, you know, whether or not you survived or didn't survive. Yes, you could be smart and calculating and be able to read the tea leaves properly, but a lot of this has to do with timing and a little bit of luck and also the connections. I mean, but there are spaces where women rescuers actually, sexism helped them to save lives in a way. Uh, we see this with women who are the head of the household. If they were, if women were the head of the household, they were less likely to suffer daily visits from the entire humway. Uh, the Interahamwe would make their rounds in the morning in search of male recruits to help them with the killings of the day. And if it was a woman-headed household with no men of age or even young men of age that could go and help, they were in, they were spared these visits and also the indoctrination that came with it. 
Other women understood that if they were, especially those who were hiding individuals in their homes, that there are gendered perceptions of the domestic sphere and also spaces within the home. And so there is the instance of one woman who hid a young Tutsi boy underneath her bed and she was living alone. She and her husband had separated. And so when the Interahamwe came to visit and demanded that they search the home, she announced, I am alone you are welcome to come into this home. But they were embarrassed because it was improper to be in the home alone with a woman who is not accompanied by a man. And so she was able to save the young man who was hiding under her bed. In another instance, we know of a woman and her husband who they worked together. They were uh, partners in their rescue. She hid people in her kitchen. Because she knew that the Interahamwe militia members uh, who came and visited, who happened to all be men, and the majority were men. Occasionally, we have instances where women participated in with a militia, but they're they're not as common as we would think. They they hid the individuals in the kitchen because they knew that the entire hamway would not even think to search there because that's a woman's space. And so there are these instances where they they understood they manipulated. Uh, these gendered norms and, and expectations in, to their advantage. You also have some women who benefited unknowingly. There was the story of one woman who rescued a Tutsi infant who she found on the back of someone who had been murdered. And she brought this baby home and she nursed it alongside her other infant. And this woman was very frail. She's a very, uh, she's got a very thin frame. She's very small. She speaks in a very timid tone and so I understood when she told the story that the entire home came to, the, came to the house and said, your neighbors have told us that you brought home a baby. They saw her nursing two infants. They knew one of them was probably a Tutsi, but they laughed at her instead of taking action and said, oh, she's this woman. She's so weak. She's so thin. She'll never be able to feed these two babies anyways. Let's just leave her. They leave. And that child is now in secondary school. So... In some instances, it did help to save lives. And it did also help that uh, in a number of these instances, women who did rescue, they were able to do so perhaps because of the absence of a male head of house in the home. It was not my intent, but it turned out that nine of the 16 women rescuers that I interviewed did not have a man, spouse, or partner at home during the genocide. For one reason or another, they could be away at work, they could be separated, they could be widowed, they could, they could be divorced. But nine of the 16 women did not have a man at home that they would have to work with or answer to. And so they had assumed the position of head of household, and they were able to make decisions and exercise agency and, and also probably benefit from being overlooked by the Interahamwe militias. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that a coincidence or does that say something about the kinds of women or the locations of women that are able to to um, contemplate participating in rescue attempts? <sighs> you know, I'm not sure. I think it, it was an unexpected factor for me. But at the same time, the more I thought about it, I was not surprised by it. I wonder if I'm not sure that it played necessarily a role in the decision to rescue. I believe, though, that it played a role in the success of the rescue because there were instances of rescue attempts at rescue that were unsuccessful around the country. And I interviewed some women who had unsuccessfully, they had tried to rescue. One of them had had a man at home and therefore the entire humway came looking for them. I'm not sure. I think that it was a factor in, 
in the success of the rescue, perhaps not the decision to rescue. But that's a, I would love to have the time and space to go back and actually do a much broader study on women rescuers, because one of the things that I found was while there is a formalized mechanism for identifying women perpetrators, that was Gachacha in the national courts, there is no mechanism for identifying women rescuers. And so it was much more difficult to locate them. I was going to ask about that, because one of the points you make toward the end of the book is not only is it more difficult to locate them, but they actually, in many cases, feel frightened or threatened or nervous, I don't choose your word, because of their, still, because of their actions during the genocide. Yes. Yeah. That's an unfortunate reality that many of them continue to hide their acts of heroism for fear of retribution or alienation or some sort of blowback from the local community. So, and others, as you saw in the, my chapter about the post-genocide trajectories, a number of the women actually faced punishment. So you had one woman who was beaten, a number of women, they lost their properties or their properties were destroyed. Others still face threats. Um, the woman who nursed two infants, one of whom was a, a Tutsi baby who survived and thrived, she is still threatened and spat upon by her neighbors. So she has this uncomfortable detente. And one thing that's interesting regarding the intersection here of sex and security, I mean, Rwanda has progressed by leaps and bounds in terms of gender equality and equity and representation in Rwanda, uh, in in politics, but also in society. But at the same time, the intersection of sex and security is still very prevalent for some of these women who assess their safety according to the absence or presence of a man in the home. So for some of them, including this woman who's regularly threatened, she said, but I, my husband's still with me and so I feel safer. So there's, you know, there's this space where many of them are still hiding or they, they've relocated, they've changed their names, they've changed their churches, they've changed their, their circles of friends, they no longer interact with their own family members because of their acts of rescue. So, so is that true with men, male rescuers as well? Or is it, is it a result of kind of a, a, the fact that female rescuers went against gendered norms in their behavior? So I don't know that I can answer that based on my own work. I can tell you anecdotally based on the women rescuers that I interviewed who talked about their husbands and their husband's safety, that one woman believed her husband was poisoned and murdered because of his acts of rescue. Another, her husband was directly killed right in front of her because he was trying to rescue her and her family. She was uh, both rescuer and survivor. So, and faced extra compounded uh, risks and, and difficulties as a result. So I think that there are some instances in which I can say that there, that men did face risks and threats to their lives and sometimes loss of life, but because they weren't the focus of my study, as you can see, there's, there's not a lot of gender balance in who I decided to interview. Uh, I specifically really focused on interviewing women to get women's narratives at the forefront of this, of this book. And so maybe my last question about the book, um, and I want to make sure I'm reading this right, because maybe I'm not, but you tell a story, and this, this comes in in your last chapter, and then the kind of concluding piece, you, you tell, tell a story about um, a rumor, a false rumor, that the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame, had died, and that in places there's celebration, while in other places there's mourning, and 
And I take away from maybe the last third of your book is that the recovery or um, progress, whatever word you want to use, is, is fragile, more fragile than is usually portrayed. Is that the sense that you have about the state of Rwanda now? I think Rwanda has, again, it has progressed leaps and bounds in the last 23 years. The aftermath of the genocide, they faced incredible challenges in order just to rebuild the basic infrastructure of the country, but also to rebuild the people and a national ethos. And they've, by and large, really made some incredible gains in in all of those areas. At the same time, there is this fragility and that anecdote about an incident that happened when I was there in 2014, in which there just this rumor spread like wildfire. It was such a it was so unusual, and it, but the the response on a local level, and I checked for it in the international media, it wasn't really covered. But on a local level, this is all everyone was talking about, and the fact that you know on the on the border with Goma and the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Goma, there are celebrations. They're parading around with a casket. They're shooting. Uh, they're shooting AK-47s into the air. Apparently, there was, a, it was, there was this very jubilant response to the idea that Paul Kagame was dead, the president of Rwanda. And there was this real fear, especially in some of the rural areas on the borders of Rwanda. People began to flee. They just packed up and left. They, you know, they didn't even wait for the rumor to be substantiated. And what was so interesting to me was that Paul Kagame had to go on the radio that afternoon and announce, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm alive. And it prompted a really interesting conversation in the home where I was living. I was being hosted by a family where they said to me, and this was just a, a moment that just brought it all home for me. They said, look, we have two small children. If something were to happen, we want you to take the children and go to a border. And that for me was such a disturbing and shocking moment. They have, this family has all the faith in the world and the government and uh, their ability to maintain peace. But at the same time, they still wanted to have a backup plan. And I think some of that has to do with uh, a larger national trauma that I don't think is limited to the survivor population, but is in fact a trauma that is shared all over Rwanda. The, the fallout of the genocide, the impact of the genocide, really, it reached witnesses, bystanders, perpetrators, rescuers, survivors alike, and even the outside population that lived the diaspora population that later came in to help rebuild Rwanda. The country by and large is, you know, it's stable enough that I was willing to take my mother there. Uh, and that, that should say something. It's, it, it's an incredibly, a remarkably developed country with a lot of prospects and it, it is fast on its way to becoming this technological and tourism hub for Central Africa and East Africa. But yeah, there's still this lingering trauma that I think will take generations in the same way we've seen with intergenerational trauma after the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide in Cambodia. I think there is going to be uh, an intergenerational reckoning and healing that will have to take place and will require some temporal distance because they don't have the geographic distance that was afforded to some other survivor populations where one population is able to remove themselves and move to another country. That's not really happening in Rwanda. So temporal distance is going to be necessary for a full healing. Although I think 
many efforts have been undertaken. And I think that the interdependent nature of especially the rural communities requires a re-knitting of the social fabric, perhaps a little bit faster than would happen in an urban setting. And that that has been successful in some areas and less so well, in others. It's a fascinating book. Um, and I really appreciate your spending some time with us today. I always try and end with the same questions. Um, and they're pretty simple questions. Uh, it's when we're recording this, it's Thanksgiving break. And in theory, if not in fact, I should have some time to read this weekend. Um, what what books or maybe movies or documentaries or podcasts or something else, what would you recommend to my listeners and I that we should read that struck you as important or interesting or moving while you were doing your research? So I found myself uh, repeatedly going back to the writings of Cynthia Enlow when I was working on this book. And she recently published, not to plug another person's book, but I'll happily do it anyway. She recently published a book uh, that I'm in the process of reading and really am a big fan of called The Big Push. For me, her books were so digestible and so straightforward and often helped to steer some of my most basic questions when trying to do a thoughtful feminist analysis, trying to conduct a thoughtful feminist analysis. Sometimes I would get too deep into my head. And so I needed to just take a step back and ask the most basic of questions. And her books often help to rein me in and bring me back to those basic questions. So I think her texts, all of them, but especially her most recent one, The Big Push, which I'm I'm really in the process of enjoying, that those would be some recommendations for me. I also am a huge fan of just the power of testimony. And so I would encourage anyone who has read, has an interest in the history of the genocide in Rwanda, but who maybe has not had a chance to hear from a survivor or a witness of the genocide to visit one of the existing online archives in which you are able to access these testimonies because the firsthand narrative, it's such a valuable primary resource. And it also enables this interpersonal connection and an emotional uh, and beyond just the analytical historians analysis or political scientists analysis or anthropologists analysis, it enables this interpersonal connection that I find very, very valuable. So I would recommend that you, and this is again, not to self plug, but to self plug, please do visit the Shoah Foundation's visual history archive or their free education portal eyewitness where you can watch full testimonies and curated clips on specific topics. Also, uh, Aegis Trust and the Kigali Genocide Memorial have a wonderful genocide archive of Rwanda that also has, and this is an interesting thing, they have perpetrator testimonies as well on their archive. Well, those are great suggestions, uh, and I will try my best to take them up, although I'm, I'm lucky enough to teach a book, a class, which um, the uh, unofficial subtitle is The Eight Books You Should Read So That You Can Always Drop a Book Title in a Job Interview. <laughs> I'll push the end low into there. But my last question um, is simple, but maybe challenging for somebody who just got done with five or six years of writing. What's your next project? (sighs) (laughs) You know, yeah, I was going to say unpacking, um, unpacking from our recent move might be my biggest project, but no, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to be working on this new arm of the Shoah Foundation's education uh, 
portal. So I'm, I'm working a lot on post-secondary content and resources, activities and clips and teaching guides and working with students, faculty and administrators around the country, but also around the globe to help use these testimonies in meaningful ways to teach, not just about the genocide in Rwanda or the Holocaust or Armenia or Cambodia or Guatemala uh, or Nanjing. Those are the six uh, big collections that we have, but also to talk about how to be better citizens in this world, how to how to develop empathy, how to overcome the bystander effect to become, uh, in the words of Samantha Power, an upstander. So that's been, that's my big project right now. It's, it's not necessarily the most academic one, but at the same time, I think that more academic attention should be focused towards this power of testimony and primary sources to not just inform, but also to build better society. Well, I hope sometime, um, You'll come back on the show and talk about that. That's a really important topic, and I'd love to chat with you some more. Um, Gladly. But I've taken a lot of your time now, so I'll just say thank you so much, and I appreciate your time, and I wish you a good holiday. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.